You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. And welcome to episode four of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the 1980s Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I am your host, Tom Panneries. This time out, I'll be taking a look at issue number four of The Nom, which came out on December 9th, 1986, and was cover dated March 1987. I'll also be taking a look at the letter column, ads, and we'll be providing a decent amount of background and historical context as to this particular month of the Vietnam War, which is May of 1966. During this time, Bob Dylan's Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, went as high as number 2 in the Billboard charts, and that's used to the song you heard that opened the show. Now, last time out, we saw our boys get some R&R, or at least attempt to get some R&R, and this time we're going to have a little bit of an intrusion of the world, courtesy of a 6 o'clock news crew. In fact, 6 o'clock news is the title of this issue, which was written by Doug Murray, Penciled by Michael Golden, inked by Pepe Moreno, lettered and colored by Phil Felix, and edited by Larry Hama. Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief. Top is briefing his men, and he tells them what he's about to say regarding the next mission is very, very important. They have a special guest, Mr. Dennis Lawrence, who is a television correspondent for a major network. They're going to head to a village and be neutralizing it because intelligence says it's completely taken over Charlie. Lawrence will be reporting on the entire thing. Marks, who is at the briefing, well, his eyes go wide and he says, You mean the folks at home are going to see us? That's right, Marks. We're all going to be on TV, Top tells him. The troops file out, and Top tells Rob to get his butt in gear. Rob questions why they're doing this in broad daylight, and Top replies, Well, he's pretty sure the presence of Charlie is nothing but BS, and says that the pictures will be so much better in the sun. The two leaves with with Sarge in the office blowing smoke behind them. Everyone gets on the choppers and they take off for the village. They make a pass. The cameraman says that maybe the other angle would be better because there's better light. So Top orders the chopper to come in on the other side for the purposes of getting better light. Just as they're doing that, the villagers take a tarp off of a mound and reveal an anti-aircraft gun, which they begin firing right at the choppers. The firefight begins, one of the choppers gets taken out, and the choppers that are all right land safely, and the troops shuffle out and begin firing at the villagers, while Top gets on the radio. A little ways away from the village, Marx is with Rob, and they are doing their best to see if anyone in the fallen chopper is alive, and there isn't anyone. Rob says they have to get out fast because they're going to ca- they're going to napalm the entire village, and they don't want to be caught in that. Ed adds that if the VC are getting out of there quickly, they're going to be coming right for them. So they need so the guys do need to get some distance. Rob says they're going to hump it through the jungle and knows they'll come upon an American patrol at some point. As predicted, Top orders an airstrike. He calls for an LZ with the cameras rolling the entire time. The choppers arrive, and he orders them to mount up. Albergo asks, what do you mean, mount up? What about Marks and Rob? You're not going to just leave them here. To which Top replies, there's nothing we can do now, Specialist Albergo. Now climb aboard before you get in trouble. Before changing his serious tone to a lighter, come on, Mike. I'll start the wheels rolling to get help as soon as we get back to base. Get aboard. And they leave. 
Meanwhile, not too far away, Marks, Rob, and a few other guys set up camp. Marks asks Rob how he knew that Top was going to order a napalm hit, and Rob says he knows from experience because it's exactly what he did about 15 months ago. In fact, he's been in this wharf with Top for quite some time. They head out, and they begin walking down a road with Marks at the point. A little ways down the road, they are ambushed by some VC, and Rob gets hit. Marks gets the enemy with a grenade and gunfire, and while Rob is wounded, it's not too bad. Rob jokes that, well, third time wasn't the charm after all, and then proceeds to tell Marks about the first time he was hit a while back, and Top, who was known as Jimbo back then because he was only a staff sergeant, saved his life. Rob ended up re-upping, he got hit by sniper fire a couple of months later, and the army then decided to assign him to a desk, figuring, well, the third time's a charm, it'll probably get killed. So, he got his current job, which is as Top, or Jimbo's, flunky. But, he explains that the war had changed him, and Top was now, well, mercenary, grabby, sour. He just knows that it changed the man. Marx insists that they're still friends, and Rob wonders if anything is going to change now that he's got wound number three. Marx tells him to worry about that tomorrow, and they head out on the road again and come across some choppers and a base. They're home. Back in Top's office, Rob tells him that he was lucky, and Top chides him for not staying put, saying that the rescue team found the chopper that had gone down. Rob said the VC had gone by two hours prior to that, implying that they would have been dead by the time the rescue team found them. Top insists that an order is an order, and says that it's all water under the bridge, and he should get some rest, because, well, Top's got a ton of paperwork that Rob needs to do. Rob loses it, screaming that he's not doing any more of Top's paperwork. No way. Top comes back at him, screaming, Who do you think you are? And orders all of the guys out of his office. Before they leave, Marks asks when they're going to be on TV, and Top's replies, Well, it won't happen, because the cameraman never changed the film and never shot the ambush, which we all probably know is a blatant lie. As Marks leaves, Top orders Sarge to make sure that the paperwork is filed for Marks and Rob to get the Bronze Star. I know I've said this already, but I really have enjoyed these first few issues and how each one seems to be showing a different aspect of the war as it also takes time to develop characters. For instance, we get a more of a focus on Top and on Rob and see what motivates each of them and why they are who they are just as we're seeing the media and its coverage of the war. Now, if you know your American history and you know your history of the media, then you know that Vietnam was really the first quote-unquote television war. And that was there was a massive amount of coverage and reporting done by television networks in ways that there hadn't been seen because, well, television was virtually non-existent during World War II. And it's and television as we know it today was still in its infancy during Korea. By the mid-1960s, however, television was virtually ubiquitous, especially in the suburbs, and there were reports on a nightly basis about the war in Vietnam. One of the most famous reports would wind up being courtesy of Walter Cronkite, who on February 27, 1968, closed out a report in Vietnam with an editorial that clearly questioned the United States' effort and ability to win in Vietnam. This is the editorial that legend has it caused Lyndon Johnson to say, if I've lost Concrete, I've lost Middle America. Now, there's no real verification to the truth of that story, but he did eventually drop out of the race for his re-election. Another source that winds up being very insightful is print media, and being a print media person, a print media junkie, as you will, I have to give some love here, especially to publications like Life Magazine. Um, I have a copy of a special edition of Life that came out a number of years ago. It's called 70 Years of uh, Extraordinary Photography. And I bought it because, well, I'm a sucker for Life magazine. 
and some of that sort of stuff. Uh, there's a whole section on war and war coverage. There are several shots from Vietnam, which do, are pretty famous. One, which is labeled Semper Fi, was taken on October 5th, 1966 by Larry Burroughs. And the caption reads, On October 5th, 1966, a company of U.S. Marines was caught in an ambush on Mudder's Ridge. Casualties were heavy. In this photograph, now familiarly known as Reaching Out, Gunnery Sergeant Jeremiah Purdy has just arrived at a first aid station. Purdy's wounds are bad, but he seems more concerned with a fellow comrade who has also been hurt. The photo sat in a slide tray in life's offices until Burroughs died five years later. The picture then read an article devoted to his memory. The picture does show uh, kind of a bit of a wasteland, and there's one guy completely covered in mud with bandages on both of his legs with this sort of... I had dead look on his eyes. You don't know if he's alive or not. And, and standing, he's looking right at another soldier who has a band around his head uh, with with blood on, on part of the, the the wrapped bandage. And he's like reach. He is reaching out toward his toward his friend while the others the other troops try to kind of guide him along. You know, to, to get him to where where he needs to go. Um, it is a it's a striking. It's obviously well composed image, and it's a striking image, and it's it's a very real sort of uh of a very very real sort of of image not that any other image was fake but you know what i mean this sort of a you know it's not as sugar-coated as some other portrayals of of world events uh we we may see or not as uh antiseptic perhaps so what we seem to have back home as we head closer and closer to 68 which is really a tumultuous year in the history of the war and in the history of our country, to be completely honest, is the public beginning to come become more and more aware of what is going on in the war as opposed to what they perceive. Not that anyone may have deliberately been pulling the wool over their eyes, but honestly, we ingest so much and ignore so much, even in our modern-day uh, society, that it does take certain events to change our perspective a little. The Tet Offensive and Cronkite's subsequent reporting, for instance. Now, back to the story that actually is in this issue, in issue four. I'm not rooting for anyone in this comic to actually die, but there is something nice and appropriate about Top's arrogance about this being a fluff mission for TV that gets those boys killed. When the anti-aircraft gun reveals itself and starts firing, Golden Marino did a great job of illustrating the holy crap look on his face. Plus, when the chips are down, he's still into covering his own ass. He does a half-assed attempt at a rescue, and I'm sure Albergo sees through that, but knows there's only so much he can do. And in the end, we know that only Marx is naive enough to think that, yeah, the cameraman forgot to change the film in the camera. Sure he did. You can tell, too, that there's something go- that something's going to come to a head with top, no pun intended. Sarge is right there witnessing a lot of this. Rob might be pissed off enough to do something about it. In fact, you do get the reason, the feeling that the reason that Top has been able to cover his ass for so long is because of Rob, maybe doing it for him. Murray uses this ambush and the fact that Marks and Rob and a few guys get separated from the others to flesh out Rob's character a little bit, something you wouldn't have been able to do if they were all back in the barracks or in Top's office or in camp, because there he's a flunky carrying out administrative orders. Here he can speak a little more freely, and we see that he's not some sort of stereotypical... He's not really flat that flat of a character. He's got motivation, for instance, for being a lackey. He feels on some level that he owes him. And I think that the way that Marx is written, he's one of the few other characters who really could get this story from Rob, because in a way, Marx is, well, he's this 
still this wide-eyed kid. I mean, of course, he keeps asking about being on TV. It's a total Ed Marks thing to do at this point. The action is, once again, well-paced. I like how that because this is code-approved and the writer and artist has to keep most of the gore off-panel, they still manage to convey the gravity of everything, and they don't make it seem like a cartoonish action flick. In fact, there's a great line when Mark sees the VC and Rob gets shot, then Mark takes them out with a grenade in almost an entire clip, and Rob says, Nice job, Marks. A little John Wayne, though, don't you think? Clearly, Murray's making a dig at Rambo and those types of movie experiences. And that's it for the issue. When I get back, we'll talk historical context, ads, and letters. He joined the crusade. He helped rule the night. He fought for justice. He wore short pants. Okay, so Robin didn't always have the best fashion sense. But there's no way that he should be ignored, ridiculed, or even derided by some Bat fans. He's been an important part of Batman's history for nearly 75 years, and that's why I've decided to give him his due in Taking Flight. Presented by the Batman Universe, Taking Flight is a podcast dedicated to all incarnations of the Boy Wonder, and every episode I take a look at the adventures of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, Damian Wayne, and all the others who have worn the red, green, and gold at the side of the Cape Crusader, as well as in solo adventures, whether it be as Robin, Nightwing, Red Robin, or the Red Hood. New episodes appear every two weeks at the Batman Universe, which can be found at thebatmanuniverse.net, and you can find additional show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. So join me, Tom Panneries, as I put the spotlight on the greatest sidekick in comicdom. And we're back. So, May 1966. On May 15th, the South Vietnamese Army besieged Da Nang, which is where my father was stationed, actually, when he was in Nam. Uh, it was the largest airport in use during the war. It would be a major airbase for the U.S. until 1972. On that same day, there's a large anti-war protest in Washington, D.C., with tens of thousands of people picketing the White House and then rallying down at the Washington Monument. May 16th, while not a part of the war, is notable because it marks the beginning of the Cultural Revolution in China. This was Mao Zedong's rather zealous institution of hardline cultural communist policies and beliefs. Related to the war, though, on that same day, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would give his first big speech about the war, and uh, he would come out firmly against the war. In fact, he spent a lot of time in the last couple of years taking up that anti-war cause. Uh, There really isn't 
much else in the war for May of 1966 uh, or events uh, otherwise, although I do have one for you, Scott Gardner, if you're listening. May 28th, It's a Small World opens at Disneyland in Anaheim. Incoming for this month, the letter column, it's still talking about issue one. We have somebody mailing in from London. We have Uncle T, who says he's a little north of the world, writing in, saying that he's familiar with Doug Murray's work on the fifth of the first feature, which was in the Savage Tales magazine before the nom, and how he did let his skills shine. Uh, The first sergeant, the corruption of the former, uh, the lack of the latter, you know, top and what have you. Uh, Ed Marks, a character similar to the average comic reader, thereby allowing Same to feel something of what it was like to be there, which is something common I had about issue number one. And then he says, I must protest the use of real time. It forces Doug and Mike to compress too much into each issue, losing room for valuable characterization, and the reader is deprived of many possible good adventures that happened. Please lose the restriction and tell the whole story, all of it. Originally, I was annoyed by the too cartoony art of Michael Golden and Arondo Gill. I knew they were capable of more realism, and it probably was intentional and necessary. A lighthearted art stopped the reader from becoming totally depressed with the dark story. Overall, I think you got a great book. The editor responds, Just a couple of words about our use of real time. There are two main reasons we decided to do the book this way. First, the Vietnam War was spread out over 15 years of time, from the arrival of First Advisors in 1960 to the pullout in Saigon in 1975. To attempt to cover this in normal comic fashion, we would have jumped all over the time period and probably ended up with a book that confused as much as enlightened. By using real time, we can give a straightforward narrative line to the entire series. The shape of the war and the way it changed from year to year will be understood to the average reader, and that change in shape and size is what made the Vietnam War what it was. Additionally, the use of real time allows us to give a better feel for what the war was like to the foot soldier. Troops in the Nam lived for the ETS, estimated time of service, and shipment back to the States. They kept short-timers calendars to keep track of the days. Can we do less for the people in the comic? After all, we want the reader to get a survey for what Vietnam was really like, not a peek at an endlessly ongoing conflict. Nom notes. Uh, let's see. We got Charlie. We've already covered. Cops took a hit, got wounded. Fast movers, fast-moving aircraft jets, usually used for F-4s. First CAV, short for the first air cavalry and airborne unit stationed in the Nam throughout most of the war. A greenie, of course, is a rookie. A hooch is a barracks. Clicks kilometers, about two-thirds of a mile. Most koshi, Japanese slang for a little bit, a little while. Paul Revere, Tanfang 14, a combined U.S.-South Vietnamese mission to pacify large pieces of territory and clean out several VC strongpoints. It lasted from May 1966 until September of the same year. Quad 50, a weapon developed in World War II in which four 50 caliber machine guns were mounted on a single frame to sh- allow them to shoot at the same point, used it as an air- aircraft weapon. That is the weapon, by the way, that the VC had in the village that shot down the helicopter. A slick used to refer to the UH-1, the troop-carrying version of the very present Huey helicopter, and Uncle Sugar, or Uncle Sam. Finally, this issue, we have ads. Uh, We have the M&M's one, we have... Uh, which we had, uh, they they seem to run, and, and this is kind of interesting. They seem to they seem to have kind of a longer life for some of these ads, uh, rather than like a month or two that I see in a lot of '90s comics. But we have two, yes, two Gumby and Pokey Brock's Gumdinger Adventures. 
these are parts two and three. So, as you as you remember, Gum, po, po, Gumby and Pokey were were flying in their Gumdinger hot air balloon into the Gumdinger land, and and Pokey says, "Gumdinger land, who?" Gumby says, "Okay, Pokey, quit horsing around and land this thing." And the the hot air balloon hits a Gumdinger, and and pow! Pokey says, "Watch out, we're gonna crash." You really blew it this time. Hey, our balloon is stuck atop that giant gum dinger. Wow, look at all these flavors. Cherry, grape, watermelon, apple, orange, and vanilla, and strawberry ice cream. Never mind that. How are we going to get back up there? Hmm, because the gum dinger pops have a lot more gum than other pops, maybe I can blow a bubble and float to the top. I always said you were full of hot air, Pokey says as Gumby starts blowing a gigantic bubble. To be continued. And we'll continue here because last time, Gumby and Pokey's hot air balloon crashed atop a giant gum dinger pop. Gumby blows a gum dinger bubble in hopes of floating up to the balloon. I always said you were full of hot air, Pokey says. Yeah, because we saw that panel, okay? We've been reading the comics, guys. We've been waiting for this. You don't need to repeat yourself. Alright, Gumby grabs the bottom of the the bottom of the gum dinger. Whoa, hang on, Pokey. With a lot more gum than most other gum pops, you sure blew a big bubble. Oh no, we're going too high. Don't forget get to grab the gum dinger, Pops. Hey, I'm getting the hang of this. Pop the bubble before it's too late. Pop! I think we bit over, off more than we could chew this time. Yee, we're falling. Wow, what a great landing! And we found what we came for. Delicious gumdinger pops. Cherry, grape, watermelon, apple, orange, strawberry ice cream, and vanilla ice cream. Stay tuned for more gumdinger adventures. And of course you can get a Gumby and Pokey fun kit. I guess gumdingers were trying to compete with blow pops. Vanilla and strawberry ice cream. <coughs> Sounds disgusting. All right, we have a Marvel Super Mart ad featuring Storm with her mohawk, a hodgepodge ad that mostly has stuff about comics and comic supplies, as well as Charles, Charles Atlas and finishing high school at home so you can stay home and read comics instead of actually going to class. There's an American Comics ad which is offering new, new Universe comics for 99 cents. Man, Jim, if American Comics declare of all things blazing hot is selling new universe comics for 99 cents each, then I think we can call it a night on that. Come on. And what else do we have in here? Uh, first few issues G.I. Joe, which is the hottest comic of the 80s, and I actually will stand by that. That thing sold like crazy in the mid-80s. Those are going up for upwards of uh, 20 bucks, which makes sense. X-Men is hot. And issues from 96 until 121 are going anywhere from 1250 to 2750 Although it looks like you can get the Dark Phoenix Saga for 750 an issue, which actually is pretty good when you think about it. So we're not too crazy with these ads where they're promoting stuff like, you know, Brigade number one for 30 bucks a piece or whatever. I don't know if they did that, but you know what I mean. Uh, there's two pages of Mile High Comics ads. We have the New Universe Super Sleuth Sweepstakes again. And an ad for Fallen Angels, which is a miniseries that I'm not familiar with. Um, it looks like, and I'm vamping, that, is that Sunspot? The one who kind of always like went dark and, and glowed, um, standing over 
one person, a, a, a fallen mutant. It says, one moment of anger and their lives are changed forever, created by Joe Duffy and Carrie Camille. Um, yeah, I'm not really... I Beyond the few issues of New Mutants that I own from crossovers, like Extinction Agenda, for instance, I'm not that familiar with the New Mutants, uh, so I wouldn't even know what uh, what this is. Uh, but yeah, that's about it. Um, I'll be back in two weeks with issue five of the Nom. Until then, thanks for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. On you and you're riding in your car